Hello, everybody, and welcome to What Would the Smart Party Do? We're back again, not just me, Gaz. Hi, Baz, how are you doing? Really good. I'm awesome. How are you? Yeah, really good. I've done it again, though. I know we said we'd take it easy on the guests. I went out and found one. Sorry. You did. I, there aren't any guests left. The role-playing industry, we turned it upside down. We're shaking it and pulling its pockets out. There's nothing left in gaming. Oh, except there always is, isn't there? There's some really there good is. guests that we haven't spoken to, to be fair. <laughs> yeah, and, and this time we've got Dennis Detwillow. So, yes, he's um, not just an RPG writer, but also a brilliant artist. Uh, that's going to be a bit of a challenge for us to put forward via the medium of airwaves, but you'll just have to trust me on this one. I'll use Google to find him, but uh, a great artist, great game writer as well, and takes real pride in what he does, doesn't he? He does, mate, yeah. So Dennis Detwillow will be known to many, uh, if not now, then by the end of the interview, definitely, as uh, as one of the co-creators of the Delta Green role-playing game, as is now, and it was originally a supplement back in the in the 90s, um, a real classic. If you don't know Delta Green, look up, I don't know, Google something like best role-playing things ever, <laughs> and I think Delta Green have got number one and number two on the RPG Net all-time list. They are revered works of role-playing stuff from back in the day, back in when we were in our stride, mate. Back in our yeah. imperial days, when we owned the world, like twin colossi <laughs> running around, running stuff like that at conventions all over the UK. Dennis is famous for that, but not just that as well. One of the, the, the minds behind Godlike, another one of our favorite games. Uh, and coming right up to date, there's a Kickstarter, which is, I'm sure, going on right now as you listen to this, if we can get it out in time, which we said we would. Yeah, Wrestle Nomicon, a kind of Cthulhu, Rock'em, Suck'em card game. We'll let Dennis tell you a little bit about that uh, himself mm-hmm. in a couple of minutes. But uh, yeah, he's a, a master of all mediums, not least of which, of course, Twitter. So uh, you should definitely go and find him on there as well because he, he's produced some threads recently about what to do to become uh, a new designer in the game world or uh, how to go about it and gives away some of the pitfalls and things that he came across as he's learned his lessons of the, uh, cutting his gaming teeth. Yeah. So Dennis gives good advice. He's now an independent game creator. He's making a living out of this, um, having worked in video games for many years and been one of the names right back at the beginning with a, a little-known card game called Magic the Gathering. So he's he's done a lot of things. He's been a lot of places, some of them quite dark and nasty, and he's come up into the light to talk to us today. So uh, I guess without further ado, me, Gaz, and Dennis Detwiller. The Smart Party are raising funds to help with the running costs of the show. We use Patreon, which is kind of like a modern magic item that turns you into a connoisseur of all that is good in gaming. To show your support, just head over to patreon.com slash thesmartparty. You can donate a dollar, a credit, a copper piece, or a fiver per month. It all goes into the portable whole of web hosting costs and helps us look after you every month with new Smart Party content. Patreons get a big thanks from us, some backer-only goodies as and when, and the warm, confident glow of the just and righteous to help you sleep at night. Join the Smart Party at patreon.com today and tell all your friends tomorrow. Cheers! And so here is the man himself, Mr. Dennis Detwiller. Now, have I got that right, Dennis? Have I pronounced your name correctly? Yeah, yeah. In fact, you're the first one in about a month who's gotten it right. It's usually, they usually say Weiler or something like there's an E-I somewhere in there. Just Willer. Yeah, cool. That's all good then. Uh, And it's not just you, of course. Baz is over there in the corner. How are you doing, Baz? I'm really good, mate. You never get my name wrong. No. <laughs> it's hard, oh, it's but it's one syllable. That's my level. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, but you don't know what it's short for. You say it backwards, you summon demons. <laughs> okay, Dennis. So uh, I think we should start off with what you're up to right now because you've got a Kickstarter live, right? What's all that about? Yeah. Uh, so me, Shane Ivey, and Rob uh, Heintzo, who you may know from 13th Age, uh, me and mm-hmm. Rob worked on Magic the Gathering way back in the dim antediluvian days of history. Uh, we're making a card game called WrestleNomicon about, uh, you know, Rock'em Sock'em Great Old Ones. So Great Old Ones are back and they're going to throw down in kind of like a WWE open cage match, which is the world. Um, and the card, the card game's up right now on uh, Kickstarter. Uh, I suppose we'll put the link up somewhere. You can find it on my Twitter or on our ArcDream account. And uh, it's live now. It's doing really well. We're really uh, excited to get a card game out there. We've never done a card game before at ArcDream. So this is our first. And we're really, really happy to be in such good company with Rob and Fire Opal Games. So, 
So what, how did that come about then? Because traditionally, RJ has been known for RPG. So, so where's the card game come from? We get bored, you know. No, it was, uh, it was, it was many years ago. I thought all this bleak staring into the face of the blackness of humanity was kind of getting to me. So I started writing down <laughs> jokes about the great old ones, and uh, you know, we came up with a bunch of cards that made me and Shane laugh. That was about the extent of it, you know, uh, Cthulhu. I forget. Yeah, there's a there's a defense card called "I'll take Rhode Island to block, please," uh, and other things that that are, are goofy and fun. And um, we found an amazing artist, this guy Kirk Komoda. You've probably seen his art in Fate and several other books. Mm. And he just that guy is a machine. I'm an artist, you know, and I, I've done it professionally for a long time. He upsets me. He just he's like, <laughs> can I can I get 300 of these? And he's like, sure, you know. And they're all layered PSD files with perfectly named layers. And, and I just want to, you know, either murder him or adopt him. I can't decide which. <laughs> Become uh, him or something. Yeah, yeah. I'll consume him for his power at some future point. <laughs> um, but, but yeah. So, yeah, everything kind of just congealed together to come up with this fun game. Excellent stuff. So you mentioned uh, Art Dream and Shane Ivan, obviously. And that's probably where uh, your, your work's best known from. Yeah. Um, and you may also mention that you're an artist. So how much of your creative talent would you say is a mix between actually performing actual art as people yes. outside of the RPG industry would know it and how much of it is involved in gaming, I guess? Well, um, so, so I'm full-time RPG now um, for about two and a half, three years now. And it's, it's been going great. Uh, and this is my horrific pen that I, I live and die on. So about 50% of my time is spent painting about 50% is spent writing and or plotting and uh, it's it's all for games, all for RPGs now. Uh, and, and I just have great fun doing it. It's just such a deep love of mine going back so long that uh, it's come around to the point where it's possible to make a living at it. And, mm-hmm. you know, there, there was very dim little bits where you could do that in the mid-90s and then it all blew up. Uh, but it's way different now. So I, I love that. There's been a, a, a you're very good at getting your stuff out there on Twitter these days as well, Dennis. And I think you've been talking recently about what it's like to be an independent publisher, what it's like to get stuff out there in the modern world. So what's that journey been like for you to move from a sense of be working for people who've got to get books printed to, well, doing it the new way? What's that look yeah. like for you? Yeah, it's it's very interesting. So so there's a, there's a little bit of a backstory. I'll try and keep it brief. So I, I, uh, I went to art school, uh, trained as a professional illustrator, did a bunch of stuff for Marvel, wandered into Wizards of the Coast. Luckiest thing I ever did. Uh-huh. Uh, ended up <laughs> right before Magic, did all the original Magic sets, and that blew up. And then I went off. I just I, I went off and went into video games for 15 years, did that. I honestly hadn't considered coming back to RPGs. I put the Delta Green, me and Shane put the Delta Green RPG up for Kickstarter as kind of a, mm-hmm. well, we have this book and let's see if we can do it. And it just exploded. And I was like, hey, wait a minute. This has all changed. I haven't paid much attention to RPGs in, uh, you know, eight or 10 years. I was still doing books. I, you know, I created The Sense of the Sleight of Hand Man, which was a very big Dreamlands book for uh, Cthulhu and a couple other books during that time. But I hadn't really devoted myself to it. So I looked at it more carefully and said, well, Patreon, what's that about? And Mm. Kickstarter, what's that about? And the truth is there's so much draw there. There's so much that people wanted um, out of me that uh, it was, it was so satisfying and so gratifying to go, you know, do you guys want this? And a thousand people shout back, yes. You know, like, Mm -hmm. um, (laughs) yeah, it was amazing. Um, and it just, it's so, every morning I get up, I'm like pinching myself going, am I doing, you know, do I get to write about Jarl Thotep today? That's so cool, you know? So it, it's really shifted from, you would uh, line yourself up with a publisher, you would send them their, their your work, it would be, you know, go through this process to get published, it would go through a three-tier system to a store, the money would come back to you a year later, you know, one third of what you thought you were going to get if you got paid ever at all. This was the 90s. And now it's, here's the money. Go make something. I, it can't get better than that. Like, I, it's so much different. It's reversed. Yeah. See, in my head, I had it that, I mean, the 90s is kind of the decade that guys and I really sort of cut our teeth on gaming. And yeah. in my head, you couldn't help but make money in the 90s. No. I, that's obviously wrong because I thought Delta 
screen was was I mean, it's, it's a masterpiece for lots of different reasons. Oh, but I assumed you. it was a hugely best selling masterpiece that basically paid for a gold toilet for you. <laughs> Is that not the case? <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, it 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 paid someone, and that someone um, ran a company called Wizards Attic. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is like a third party distributor and he stole everything. Wow. Uh, and we, we got, you know, very rarely paid. And what we did, it wasn't very much. Um, we live, we literally me, Scott Glancy, John Tynes, John Crow, and I believe Brian Appleton at one point lived in one house that had reached the point of just full on, like you could condemn the house. It had just fallen apart. Yeah. Um, and uh, so it was so bad that we forgot to buy fuel oil one year. And we just had, we just, everybody walking around in parkers. It was like the thing. I was just you know, like, no, no, one, no one trusts anyone anymore, you know. Me, <laughs> everybody's really well armed. It was very scary. Um, so that, that was the height of Delta Green's financial success. Uh, and, and past that, past that, it just kind of slowly petered away. Now, now, it, if you can imagine being part of this group, it's kind of like, I, it feels like sometimes, and I'm not to compare myself to the Beatles or anything. It felt like we recorded Abbey road or something. And yeah. then it was like, here's your blanket, have fun sleeping outside in the dirt. Uh, and you go on sites and it'd be like the greatest game of the decade. And you're, you're <laughs> like, you know, I can't afford a McDonald's sandwich. Um, I can't live off exposure and credit. Uh, so I got a little, it got a little old. And then I would wander into these, you know, uh, video game companies and they're like, we'll pay you a salary. You get to work on the Incredible Hulk, you know, like it seemed like a pretty good deal at the time. Uh, Um, So it was kind of I I regret, you know, I regret having to leave RPGs behind for so long. But coming back to them, the way things have happily reversed uh, the system made it all possible. And I know a lot of old hands uh, who have come back and are just either amazed or don't believe it. They just, they literally can't conceive that like, well, you don't sell it to White Wolf and then you get a check nine months from now. It's like, no, you just do it yourself on Patreon and they give you this much money a month. And they're like, that can't be right. Where's the sale of return? Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) And they sue you. I'm like, no, it's not like that. So did I, part of that does sound a little bit like you managed to trade on what you did in the 90s and came back to it, and therefore it's yeah. been very successful for you. Um, what do you think, a phenomenon I'm sort of seeing at the minute is some people seem to be giving up jobs to take up gaming, and they're creating like a GoFundMe or a coffee or a whatever, and they're sort of asking people for money so they can give the job up to become a full-time RPG writer, which to my old middle-aged man sensibility seems like, God damn you kids, get a job first and, you know, support yeah. yourself. Like. Yeah, it's, it's you know, um, I encourage everybody who can create something to create something. That's no stops. You could make stuff. But being able to kind of consistently make something that people want over and over and over again is, is a developed skill. It takes a long time to get there. And it takes even longer for that something that people want to coincide with your personal interests so that you love the product to the point. And this is where a lot of people, I think, really kind of don't think about it or either fall down. They go, well, I'm going to make a castle builder book for D&D 5e. And you're like, do you love castles? Like, Not really, but I have Wikipedia, you know, and I'm just like, why are you even doing that? You know, for Delta Green, like me and Shane, I, you know, it may not be evident, but we bleed on those books. Like the agent's handbook and the handler's guide, we cried like we were on FaceTime conferences where I'm yelling at him and he's weeping. And I mean, it was really like that because we, we, we had such a reputation to carry on that, that you couldn't drop the ball. If you dropped the ball, it was over. It would, the ball would kill everything this ever was. So <laughs> me and Shane are constant, and we still do it today. It's like, do you really think this is good enough? Is a common statement on, on our own writing, on our own art. And, yeah. and, and uh, if you can't bring that, you shouldn't jump in. If you can't take the piss out of yourself, you can't yell at yourself, if you can't get mad at what you're doing, because you you can see you're not doing the best thing you can do, It's this is not for you. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think that's the lesson a lot of people have a hard time with. Um, and And luckily, I went to art school in New York at a very serious art school where teachers would say things like, did you sign this? And, you know, children, kids would, kids would cry in the classroom. 
Um, and that was a common occurrence. And it was very useful. It, it taught me a lot of stuff. Um, it, you know, not to overvalue my work uh, being one of them. And if you could bring that, if you could bring that, uh, there, there are a couple of guys I see who do that, who are really young and, and up and comers. Uh, I don't, maybe I, I'll ask them next time. Maybe I can name them, but they, they, they obviously are heart and soul in it. And, and I'm mm. like, go, go, you can do this. And their market fills out behind them. It just happens. Yeah. Uh, and then you see people who are kind of like, well, I made a Facebook announcement and no one came. You know, and you're just like, dude, that's all you're going to do. You know, there you go. Um, so. So how, how much do you, like you said, you put your heart and soul into there and that that's certainly evident, I think. Um, but how much do you balance that against getting something in people's hands? Because certainly something like Delta Green went to announce a new version of it. Obviously, yeah. the old fans come out, all the people who've heard the stories, but they've never seen a physical book. They're sort of like, yes. we're going to have it at last. Yes. Yes. I don't so, know, $200 on eBay. Yeah, so the best the best example I can give you on that right now is, is um, well, one, Delta Green has always been that. So I believe we announced the first Delta Green book years before it ever even turned yeah. up. It was like yeah. in a pre-sale. And uh, I remember laughing maniacally, you know, three years into the Delta Green project going, yeah, this will be done next year. And <laughs> it, it wasn't. And then Countdown was even more. It was yeah. like, and it just kept growing. It's like, why can't we put in another 300 agencies? Okay, why not? And and that, I'm proud to say, has carried through to the modern version of Delta Green <laughs> Uh, Impossible Landscapes, the book I'm writing right now, uh, is a is a Delta Green campaign. It's the first Delta Green campaign. And I feel with my soul, every time I type a word, is this right or is this wrong? <laughs> uh, it's really hard because it's got to be perfect. Um, but the upside is they tend to grow. So this one was supposed to be, I don't know, 128 pages. And it's already far exceeded. It's, 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 yeah. it's blown that off. It's going to be more like 300 pages. <laughs> and um, and I, I'm I'm neck deep in it, and it's the hardest thing I've ever written. And that's kind of when I know I'm on the right track for the DG stuff. I never want to feel it's easy. I never want to feel, oh yeah, well then I just banged out this thing about this. It's always, oh my god. And then I always get a great idea when I'm like 98 percent through the book, like Impossible Landscapes. I just had an idea that changed the whole book, and I had to go rewrite <laughs> like three quarters of it. I told Shane, I told two other people, and they were like. Yeah, that's probably the right decision. And I was like, God damn it. Like, <laughs> so, but it's done. That part's done. I'm still cruising. But yeah, I love writing this stuff. So as long as I put my hands to the keyboard and something good comes out, we will serve no wine before it's time is kind of our motto. Huh. How, how did, let me back up a step there. That sure. can't be the, well, obviously it can because you know and I don't. Sure. How could that be the first campaign for Delta Green? Isn't like, Call of Cthulhu, the home of great campaigns and the best published scenarios. And surely Delta Green's done loads of these, obviously nope. not. <laughs> no, nope. we've, we've never done a campaign like front to back, multiple scenarios intertwined in a single investigation. Uh, wow. and, and this will be the first one. And it's uh, it centers on the King in Yellow and my favorite chapter of any Delta Green book, John Tyne's King in Yellow mythos chapter from Delta Green Countdown. So just literally that writ large as mm. a front to back solution for running the King in Yellow. Uh, so if you love David Lynch, if you love like weird, surreal horror, like The Shining, this is the book for you. Yeah, yeah. And Times came back, the gang came back together again. Yeah. He came back to, to gaming. Yeah. <laughs> I presume you told him, it's all different yeah. now, John. <laughs> I, I, I did, and he didn't believe me until we ran that Kickstarter. And uh, <laughs> yeah, we, we put a nice, at the end, we put a nice little kind of cap bonus to for him to write The Labyrinth, which is, currently being illustrated and is just amazingly cool. And I'll, I'll talk more in depth about that if you want. Um, sure. But basically when I, when I talked to John, he was like, that can't be right. And now he's working at wizards of the coast full time as a digital <laughs> development manager. Yeah, yeah. Shocking. Yeah. No gaming has changed. So, <laughs> so for me, Delta green, I mentioned this to Ken Hart and a couple of others we've spoken to recently. In my head, it's still set in the 90s. It's still yeah. Mulder and Scully, and you've got like mobile phones, these brick, brick things you held to your head rather than having right, a camera right, right. and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So the updated version, yeah. do you think that still has the, is going to have as much resonance? with? I mean, obviously you do, you're going to produce the book, as you've discussed, but um, the 90s feels like a distinct era, and the fall of Delta Green was once again high last week, and, and yeah, he had a yeah. sort of view on that. So do you think this uh, current time we're living in now is going to be as iconic in like 10 years' time or something like that? 
Oh yeah, certainly. This is this is the death of the United States government. It's going to be <laughs> No, I mean I mean quite seriously, it's the end of any, you know, understood world social order coming from the United States. Nobody has any questions about that. It's over. Like NATO is barely hanging on people. So so yeah, the 90s, I always pitched Delta Green as it's it's like the X-Files except every episode it's two new agents and they don't know what happened to Mulder and Scully. <laughs> you know, it's like they, might, clear the yeah, <laughs> they went into their house and they never came out. So we're going to go find out. Uh the modern day, the way we pitched it today is be careful what you wish for is is the central motif of the new Delta Green books. They got everything they wanted. They got the backing, they got the funding. There's still the cabal of cowboys on the outside who run crazy conspiracies, but there's also the program, and the program has budget, the program has time, the program has people and aircraft and everything, and it's worse. It's way <laughs> worse. Uh, it, it, it's horrible, in fact. Uh, they're trying to privatize discoveries from the mythos. They're majestic times 12, and uh, it, you can work for them, and that's, it's, it's bad. So we pitched it that way, and it, it's it's resounding. People really like it, so we're very excited about that. But I understand I have a soft spot personally for the 80s and, and the 70s Delta Green where it's crazy cowboy, mm. like, you know, go get the colonel or we're going to get a rocket and blow up the building. You know, like it's much more seat of your pants. And Ken's stuff, what I loved about what Ken wrote, uh, and we really worked very hard to kind of make a clear picture is, the 60s and the especially late 60s, early 70s was about America pretending it still had control. It, it was like, we got this, you know, the program, we're going to march in like white knights. We're going to take care of this. We're going to wrap up this whole Yarlow, whatever it's called. I'm sure it'll be done in a year. No problem. <laughs> and then the 80s were like, oh, my God, we were so wrong. Let's make a deal with the horrible things from beyond. And the 90s were like a split between the two fighting each other. And the modern day is... Oh my God, who won? We don't know. Um, so it's, it's great fun. Yeah, for sure. And it's not just your writing. I mean, like a big part of the Delta Green feel for me is your artwork, even when it's just a black oh, and white. Thank you. Thank you. So did, does like one inform the other? Do you write stuff? I think I need to actually physically draw this, or do you actually just draw a picture sometimes? I think, well, now I've got an idea for some words to go around that. Um, usually the art is, I, I have an idea. Uh, it's usually a very upsetting idea for me. Um, <laughs> That's kind of why I paint them. So there are a couple pieces I paint and I really got very, I felt really ill or they really upset me <laughs> on a deep level. And then I know I'm doing something. I'm painting Wilbur Waitley from uh, the Dunwich Horror right now. I just had an idea to paint him for no really good reason. I just started painting him and he's just horrible. Like he just <laughs> looks horrible. So I, I am like, every time I paint him, I'm like, should I put more warts on the nose or like, you know, I'm really messing him up. So I usually just paint it and then I'll write something around it or I'm painting in a theme. So I'm doing a King Yellow book, anything even vaguely mask related or, you know, creepy, surreal, I ends up in there somewhere. So that's how I go about it. Yeah, it's well worth checking out. I don't know if you'd know Scott Dorder at all, but he wrote uh, quite a lot of stuff for Cathedral recently. But oh, one cool. of his uh, hashtags on Twitter for a long time was like, wearing no mask. So that's, <laughs> that's a rich vein of anything being yes. vaguely masquerading. Yes, I, lo I love that stuff. So, <laughs> so your other sort of big game with, with that crew that you got involved with was Godlike. Yes, yeah. So did, and, have you got the same sort of passion around World War II and or, and or superheroes at both or... Yeah, no, I mean, I, I worked, I did, Mar you know, work for Marvel in the 90s uh, as an inker. And I, I love comic books. I love superheroes. I've written several superhero backdrops. I just did one for um, Monty Cook Games last year called Unmasked. That was great fun. So you go get the masks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, that, one was, that one was great. I really had a good time. Uh, but Godlike is probably my favorite to the point of, of, kind of an obsession both my grand my grandfathers were in world war ii in various roles a pilot and a, a merchant marine so i you know i always always told stories and my granddad you know lived on a pacific island for months you know working on airfields and uh you know fighting coconut crabs and you know <laughs> stuff like that anyway uh i used to hear these stories and get very interested in them and then i i i wanted to just add a kind of surreal twist to superheroes uh, and then Greg Stoltze came up with this amazing game engine. Now, mm. I don't know, you know, 
I don't know how many people are game designers or RPG designers. I, I have only once seen a game engine make me go, what? <laughs> and and that was Greg Stoltz's one roll engine. He just went, Boop, that's your head. It's a fatal wound. It's three. And I was like, what are you talking about? Like, you got to break that down for me. And he did. <laughs> and I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. So I fell in love with that engine. I still love that engine. Um, but Godlike, I, I'll tell you, I still write Godlike. Um, I, I'm two volumes into 300 plus page uh, history <laughs> books written in the world of Godlike. Um, and these history books are written in, a, they're called the um, uh, Superhumans in Combat, A History of Talents in World War II. And it's written as if it's just totally boring. Like it's, it's written as if the world has dealt with superhumans for, you know, 60 years. They're like a jumbo jet now, yeah. you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. people are bored, um, but it's kind of an exam. It begins with the flieger and the, the lighting of the torch at the 36 Olympics and carries through each volume is an examination of the superhumans as they kind of get bigger and bigger until it's a world of them. And it's written in a very time life kind of like <laughs> time life books presents the superhuman talents of world war two. And uh, I'm on my second volume. So I've just gotten past the indestructible man. The first American talent has just been uh, blown off the Reuben James in October by a, a U-boat uh, torpedo. And I, I just love that background. I love that setting. I love the characters. I love the open possibilities uh, for character creation. You can create the weirdest stuff and just have a grand time. Mm. It's, it's such a guilty pleasure for me, Godlike. I played it well, I played it loads back in the day. I think me and Gaz were like a two-man army for running Godlike at conventions. Yeah, oh, that's great. And, um, but it's such a guilty pleasure now because I just don't get to play it anymore. There's nothing better than picking up a copy of, say, Progenitor. And just yeah. like opening up at a random page and thinking, yeah. what the hell were they on when they wrote this? <laughs> this is good. Yeah, I love I love Greg's backgrounds too. Um, yeah. So so you know we're hoping um, not next year, probably the year after, we're going to relaunch Godlike. Oh, cool! Uh, and I'd love to do a just a revise. Like the things you guys had never seen, we have the Section Two handbook, we have the Russian handbook, yeah, yeah, yeah and they yeah. were they're done, they're written. It's it's you know, and I would love to. Th- throw all of those and the German handbook in a big godlike revised second edition sure. and see where that goes. Uh, because I think those characters just have, they have great legs and the history is so much fun. I think it's a bit of a hidden game as well now. I mean, yeah. there's a lot of stuff coming back from the 90s through Kickstarter, Unknown Armies and oh, Over yeah. the Edge. And, you know, it's, it's the alumni of that time, there's, yeah. there were some really good games. Godlike, I d- I'm not going to say it doesn't get a lot of love, but it doesn't no, get no. a lot of play. It's kind of hidden there. And, and even at the time, I, 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 did Operation Torch ever come out? I mean, no, I seem no. to remember we, we, waiting. No, and, we, and we have the book. That's the sad part. It's just, <laughs> we just, we just the, you know, the market's kind of shifted and we've never yeah. considered about, you know, like it, it predates Kickstarter. So we'd love to exactly yeah, bring it all yeah. back around once it's done. Um, but yeah, I mean, what I love about Godlike is in convention play, I've, I've ne- my, personally, I've never seen a game taken to so quickly in convention play sure. so yeah, usually yeah. you sit Great. down you go it's world war ii with weird superpowers you're in europe and you're ready to go and they mm-hmm. already know all this you know and it's like it's real life you're gonna die it's the basic just like you know you take a shell to the face you're dead you can lift a tank but it doesn't matter and they're like okay i got it you know i've very rarely seen anybody run off in the wrong direction from those instructions Mm. Um, and it's a beautiful little simple paradigm because there's so much shorthand behind world war ii Mm -hmm. that so many people know that you can just jump into play and i love that so yeah i think for me one of the things about it was um it's trying to get the right direction on the group in some ways because uh, once we've got that big list of superpowers the trouble is most people uh, well, I don't know most people, but a lot of people dive in there and go like, okay, I want to be have a death gaze and just right. kill people and look at them. Or right. I want to be invulnerable to conventional weapons. You're like, well, right. okay, cool. But I can guarantee after one session, you're going to be bored. Like, <laughs> would you much rather be like a shape changer or, you know, something like... Yeah, you know, game people min-max, no matter what. What I really liked was the willpower mechanic in there. So, you know, we always had those guys. We always had like the, I'm the diamond skin guy. And, you know, like, and there's always, you know, there's always the, the German talent who can like turn his rations into, you know, home cooked meal from his mom, but <laughs> can cancel your power in the middle of the combat because he's got 40 will points or whatever. <laughs> um, 
you know, there's always that guy. And it, it always just makes, you know, then there's a stain on the ground where the diamond skin guy used to be. And everybody <laughs> else learns a valuable lesson. But yeah, I mean, it's it's pretty standard for gamers to try and game the system as quickly as possible. But I think that then, the, the converse of it is that it gives the GM a good opportunity. So, you know, like, yeah. I, I had a German tell who, um, like, turn people bright blue, like a bright right. blue light. That's all right. he did. But That's he just, extremely useful. But he just hung around with the 88 flat guns. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Like, okay, you're blue over there. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, I mean, you know, they, they're, they're, I, I love coming up with the weird powers. So we had a guy, um, I had a, a character in the Russian front who he could only look like a German corpse. <laughs> that, that was his power. And it was a perfect power. It was completely seamless and it only worked against Germans. It never touched Russians. So, so they turn around and this guy be talking and he's walking through combat, like completely bored. And all anybody would see is these little corpses. It was quite fun, but yeah. Anyway. Uh, yeah, it was a fun game. I'd love to bring it back. Cause I, yeah. I think uh, the glazier was a great scenario as well. I think oh, that's cool. one of the things that really sold it. I think that was Again, it was like the, when you get to kind of the body in inverted commas at the end, that's like just an inventive use of superpowers rather than it just being something yeah, yeah. Nazi or whatever, you know. Yeah, you know, that was the other real challenge of the setting was come up with a way where the war doesn't significantly change. Hmm. Like w- without completely derailing the war, allow people to have time travel and all this other kind of weird stuff. And you could just do it. And it, it somehow would remain self-consistent, which was interesting. It was a thought experiment more than anything else. Yeah, definitely. I think he was even had to speak to We've mentioned it to Shane Ivy already, and he, he said we had to convince two other people. You sound like you're on board. I'll have to, need to oh. find out who the second person is. Yeah, I think it'd probably be Greg. I think he'll be on board. I would um, think so. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He's still a fan. Moving on from Godlike, I suppose, is Wild Talents. And that was just, you know, it seems like a natural progression now, but yeah. was, it, was it an easy transition that? Did you just think, okay, well, that worked. Yeah. Now we'll just move it forward a few years. Yeah, well, Wild Talents was re- really interesting. The fans, generally, for Godlike, we had, we had a really brisk mailing list. The book did really well. We're very happy with it. Um, but people came back and said, I want, you know, crazy over-the-top superpowers that aren't limited by talents. And I said, well, you can kind of build that already. Just remove the willpower mechanic. And they were like, no, we need more. So <laughs> we started messing with Wild Talents. And Wild Talents is kind of unique. Before the Kickstarter age, me and Shane and, and Greg just decided, well, let's put this up on the Wild Talents godlike mailing list and let's all build the game together. Mm. I don't think any other RPG has ever been built that way, but we had 400 some odd people reading these drafts and then play testing them and sending and literally live discussing these on a, on a, on a mailing list. And, you know, it got heated sometimes and some people took offense, but it never really devolved into kind of what we see today of you know edition Mm. wars or anything like that so it it felt like a real success in so much as everybody got their name listed lots of valuable things were learned and it wouldn't have been possible without all these people out there kind of banging the drum on this and you know i can't i honestly can't think of any other game that kind of did that and we were very upfront with our decisions that was like one of the early kind of decisions we made was whenever we make a veer we're going to tell everybody Mm-hmm. on the mailing list and it, it led to comedy and sometimes hatred but mostly just kind of goofiness which was good but people feel very strongly about it you know you're in the right direction so i love wild talents mostly because um, i got to just pull the cork out of the uh, talents of the godlike setting where you know talents can detect and cancel other talents and just completely right you know writ large Guess what? The future is not what you remember at all. It just changes horribly. Yeah. You know, Kennedy is a, a two-term president in, in the 70s who offsets the Syrian-Russian crisis. And, you know, there's all this weird stuff. The, the world's richest man is uh, um, from India. He created the first programmable computer language, which the world uses. All these weird ideas. And I was just like, okay, go. And it was, it was quite fun. Is, um, you've you've spoken before uh, quite recently as well again about publishing and about yeah. how the 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 big fat book is still the thing that people want and yep. that seems to have been true from when when people said give me wild talents this oh, this yeah. godlike isn't enough that that's still a thing you sure oh I'm absolutely certain um here, here's here's my thinking you you know uh, I always put the you know the 
YMMV, you know, your mileage may vary mm-hmm. on all my statements. But when when I asked everybody to post their home office, you know, show me your books. Yeah. It's, it's, it's about it's about 85 or 95 percent big horkin book, yeah. couple box sets and then a few digest size books. And I've you know, I'm no I'm not an anti fan of the digest size. We've published a lot of digest size books. Uh, I, I enjoy them and I think they're they're cool and have their place. Um, I just there is a the market has chosen a form factor and that form factor going back 45 years is the big hardcover book. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's really hard. It, it's like um, user interface, user experience design. There's a reason not every program is different. Uh, a UI UX designer doesn't reimagine the three buttons to close the window at the top or where the X is on a, there's, even though it's probably, they could come up with a better idea. The reason they don't mm-hmm. do that is they're fighting, you know, uh, 55 years of UI UX design, <laughs> Uh, and the big Horkin book is kind of that. It's people go, oh, that's an RPG. I've seen those before. But when you show them uh, something that's a record album or, you know, like a, a weird, long, thin art book, they go, what is that? That you're, you're effectively narrowing your possible audience. Now, it's not to say that that possible audience can't be fervent and, and love your book and buy a ton of them. It's mostly yeah. saying you're limiting your anyone outside of your target market the, the weirder your format of your book is. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, the market leaders, Pathfinder, D&D, 5e, that's, all, that's pretty much all they do is the big Horkin book. So that's kind of how I look at it. Yeah, I mean, for usability purposes, your player's handbook could be great if it was spiral bound, but people aren't going to buy that, <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah, I mean, D&D tried that, if I recall correctly. You know, they, they their Marvel superheroes line had, you know, three three punch character sheets for all the yeah. they, you know the D second edition had entire books the monster manuals that went into mm-hmm. you know uh, people you know there's been no this is the interesting part whenever i hear the new format it's always some guy going i'm gonna expand the gaming market by 300 million percent because <laughs> i've come up with this format and i'm like dude i saw that format in 1993 in like 10 games and we're still doing the big horka book it's cool have fun. Like you could do it. Yeah. It's just don't, don't expect the moonshot situation to work out. You're going to be orbiting dead in a can on the far side of the moon. Probably. I mean, Everway is, is a great example of like so much money was put into that product. Mm. It literally, you, you would not even recognize it as an RPG product at a glance. It's mm-hmm. by Jonathan tweet, it, you know, over the edge is like one of my favorite games. Everway was like, what is this? Like, you know, so it's it's you're fighting a battle between expectation and bringing something new. You know, that um that three hole punch killed us over here in Europe. We don't, oh. don't have three hole punches. We are two <laughs> and four. <It's laughs> really, you could not push <laughs> those go. things in. <laughs> that would suck. Yes, literally, we couldn't write anything on a piece of paper and put it in the binder. <laughs> My God, that would be terrible. Oh man. Oh. And is in letter format rather than A4. I mean, it's not. <laughs> but you know, I heard they don't have index cards in Italy. What? I don't know if this what? is a thing. I heard this said, some a big fan of Fate in Italy said, um, I just want to let you know, you know, all of these games that insist we have loads of index cards drop on the table. They do not exist in some countries. <laughs> you can't buy them. You think it's ubiquitous? It's not. <laughs> I'm imagining like a black market for index cards in Italy now. <laughs> yeah. Sneaking them across from Gibraltar in a boat at night. <laughs> Corleone family. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Oh, man. Brilliant. Yeah, I think um, one of the formats I'd like to say, I think this is like probably just like as old timers that mention this, but it's the box format. So yeah. I don't know if it's in like the Forbidden Lands from the, the Free Oligan guys over in Sweden, but that's just like a nice little sturdy box, a couple of volumes, an extra map and some other bits in there. That's another accepted format. You know, is the box set. I mean, the starter, the D and D five E starter set is box set. Um, I and mean, the new Warhammer, you know, come in a box set. I believe it's one of those things. Now, having said that, the difficulty of getting a box set to you, it, it, it's it's like um, it's like I'm already under fire. Okay, I'm running through a battlefield. People are shooting at me, and it's smoke. And this is like doing that while carrying someone's meal. You know, you know, you're you're trying to get, you know, keep the orange juice in the cup and, you know, shells are going off and because the box soup, 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. The box said so much can go wrong. You know, this is missized by, you know, one fifteenth of an inch. It doesn't fit in the box. The box, you know, like there's so many considerations on so many things. And, and, you know, the number of parts you put into anything, you just slowly multiply the complexity. And then you add in, well, we're talking to China. Yeah. So the translation could go anyway. And then you add in, well, you're dealing with Chinese holidays, which means, you know, three months of the year, nothing's going on over there. They're literally just partying down and they de- they deserve it because they, <laughs> they're working like crazy. We're like dogs for nine months. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but literally come February, you call the, you call the place and the, they're like, do you want to, do you want to own a print shop? No one's here. It's the doors open and you can just come by. It's all yours. I like box sets. Uh, I really need to know there was heavy interest in it before I would kind of commit to something like that. But I understand their purpose. And, I, you know, I have an original Mask of Mural Thotep box. I have, you know, I love those things. So I'm, um, I think my first RPG was the Red Box D&D uh, in 83, 84, something like that. So, Yeah, same. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. In terms of production values and things like that, we've mentioned you're right. I mean, I'm a, I'm a big fan. I'm not just saying that because you're on here. Yeah. Well, I'll, say, I'll say it afterwards as well. <laughs> <laughs> but how much do you think uh, that sort of thing makes a, a difference to role-playing games now? I think if we go back to the, the 90s or earlier, then some of the art was pretty shocking. It was just like the, the guy who wrote it drew something because he couldn't afford to pay artists. But like, yeah. in, in today's modern age, is it, do you think it's quite important now to have a good standard of art? for what Oh, oh yeah. No, I've always been a strong believer in, in kind of trying to over, you know, overproduce, uh, find good artists one and then drag them together and use them over and over again. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I'm, I'm a very, I'm a creature of habit. So I find, you know, Torin Atkinson's a really good pencil guy. I'm going to use him every time I can. Heather Hudson is awesome. And, and these are the guys who did the original DG book. And, um, but with the newest books, what, what, what's really, uh, you know, what might not, what might not be evident is, uh, it used to take me months to do the art for, for Delta Green Countdown. It was months and months and months to do all those grayscale pen drawings. I'd literally started drawing three times and I'd mess it up and just yeah. throw it out and start again. And yeah. now I'm just like, control Z, control Z. <laughs> yeah. uh, I'm literally painting an oil on top of watercolor with acrylic. My art teacher would have a stroke and just drop dead. <laughs> Even knew it was possible. You know, he's constantly yelling at me about, you know, well, you're glazing and scumbling. You need to use this much linseed oil. I'm like, yeah, Mr. Arisman, guess what? I don't have to do any of that. I can hold up my Cintiq and shake it. And the paint will go all over the place. And then I just undo it, you know? Um, <laughs> So the speed with which I can produce these paintings has, has increased 10 or 15 fold. Um, and we're, we're messing around with some other, we, we'd love to take the Delta Green rule set back to the 1920s. So we're talking about that right now mm-hmm. where the bonds mechanic would stay, but we also have a, um, a nifty little uh, academic reputation mechanic that's very similar to the bonds mechanic where like, I'm an associate professor of anthropology at Miskatonic and, you know, to, explorations into the Congo to find the lost temple of the white ape later. <laughs> my bond is zero in the anthropology <laughs> department and my butt's going to be fired and no one's going to give me, you know, tenure. Um, so you can spend, you can, you can kind of spend those points to like, you know, if you can, if you can convince the board to put the money into the Antarctic expedition, you know, you spend three of these points and when you come back, they don't want to hear you didn't find anything or 15 people died. <laughs> Uh, you kind of have to cash it back in. So we're messing with that. And if we go back to that, you know, what I'd love to do is black and white art again, mm-hmm. uh, pen mm-hmm. and ink art again. And the the quality of the digital tools are so great that I can do, you know, it'd be identical to the Delta Green Countdown pen and ink art without any of the bother of, well, throw that one out. I can <laughs> That is the worst feeling. I don't know how many times I've finished images, come within two or three inches of finishing the whole image and whoop, you know, okay, whoop. And that's like nine hours of my life gone. So yeah, it was always really hard to do that. Um, but I, I love doing the art. Um, I never get tired of doing that. So. Mm. Yeah, sure. It's it's one of the, it's like the form factor again, isn't it? It's inconceivable to think of an RPG book that didn't trade heavily on its art. Um and one of the modern things I like to see is when the artists get called out on the front cover as well. Oh, yeah. 13th yeah. Age is an example I can think yeah. of where, you know, those guys are as front and center as Jonathan Tweet and Rob Heinsu were for, right. for doing the words right. because people buy art. 
Yep. And they're, they're doing so much of the heavy lifting. They really mm. are. They are, they are convincing you of a world before you even buy it sometimes where you, you yeah. glance at it and you go, Oh, cool. I want to be there. That's what I want. Yeah. Um, and then you'll buy the book. I've seen that. So I've done that so many times, uh, but the, but the single greatest RPG book illustration wise, hands down beyond belief, no contest. Careful now. Careful. Sky realms of Jerome. Really? Okay. All right. Maybe. Miles Teves is a genius beyond all compare. And Miles went on to like an extremely successful career. He designed the suit in Spider-Man 2. He designed the Green oh. Goblin Glider. He went on to do all that. Jeroen was his homebrew campaign. But when he was painting these paintings, which I've gotten to see, they were, you know, they're Titian paintings. They're 16-foot mm. canvases with, you know, rabbit skin glue and oil. And, you know, he, he was doing these things in the classical style to an obscene degree. Just a extraordinarily clever fellow and, and his art is just amazing i hated the game but <laughs> <laughs> i was gonna say the game was traction <laughs> I, I i like the background i hated the mechanics they were very yeah. very early uh it, it's it's less the mechanics were poor it's more they are the mechanics of their time they're of the time yeah, let's yeah, put it that yeah. way sure, they, sure sure so but art just amazing yeah, we don't quite got to the stage yet where where old gamers talk about recommending games based on the art. It's still very much like, well, this has got a dice pool or it's got loads <laughs> right. of adventures you can buy. Right. Like that matters. You know? right. Whereas when you when you buy a car, it's all about what color and shape it yeah. is. That how, be, how beautiful it. Yeah. Yet. yeah, yeah. No, I, I, you know, I've heard people. I, you know, I've, I very occasionally hear that people talk about the art in a book. Yeah, uh, and it, you know. It's been gratifying because sometimes it's been me, which feels really good. <laughs> good. Uh, but but uh, for for me, like uh, Blair Reynolds always sold a book. Mm-hmm. Uh, he did the Unspeakable Oath art. He did, you know, he did this incredible line quality black and white Cthulhu art that was so dark yeah. and evil. I uh, did Realm of Shadows, the whole book, and it was just gorgeous beyond all belief. I mm-hmm. love stuff like that. So. Yeah, the Call of Cthulhu books were they were always the touchstone for like the uh, the color plate yeah. in a book. It's a bit yeah, of a lost yeah. art, the color plate. Yeah. 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 Every page is a color plate now, which is pretty much, plate. yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. right. Yeah, no, I used to love those um Chaosium books. I had all of them. I'd go down my store, my home store was uh, I don't know if you've ever been to New York City. No. My home store was the complete strategist. Okay. Which is right near the Empire State Building. If you're ever in New York, go to the complete strategist. It is a treasure trove. Well, yeah. I'd better tell the wife we're going to the Empire State Building and then get it wrong. <laughs> yeah, go across the street. <laughs> cool. Yeah, right there. But, you know, back in the 90s when I was in college, I'd wander up, wander down these ancient, dusty hallways and the complete strategist. It's these old games. And I believe in 92, 91, I found a Gamma World box set with mm. the original price sealed in plastic, and I just bought it. It was like $12 or something like that. And I was, wow. It's like, oh, my God, you know. <laughs> I'll take this. No one wanted it, of course, but they're so cool and weird. It's such a great shop that, you know, I, I miss it because I'm stuck out in the middle of the wilds. I'm not in Vancouver proper. I'm way up on Vancouver Island, which is very Lovecraftian country. Yeah. So. We we, uh, we were talking off air, weren't we? You used to live in London. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, yeah you, you might remember the, the quintessential UK hobby shop was Orcs Nest just yep. down the road from where you used yep. to live. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, there's, there's there's not too many left, I'm afraid. You know, those really cool stores that you can spend all day in poking at things. That That's yeah. the downside of the post-Kickstarter world, perhaps. Yeah. yeah, well, I mean, what's interesting about that is when you look at the future of retail, all retail, you know, they're, they're all for-profit businesses and the last bit of profit they can extract beyond kind of gutting employees is is rent. That's That's mm. all they have left. So you see all these shops. We're having something in North America called the, uh, I believe they named it the Mall Apocalypse, where all the malls are closing, <laughs> and it's just because those companies need that extra three, five, or ten percent to kind of get by at the end of the year. Um, and the game stores, uh, while while I love game stores, it's man, it's a tough business. One, just being a normal game store. Like even if you're a really wildly successful game store, that's a break even slash make a little bit more than you put out there situation. But a lot of people are stuck dealing with, you know, the three tier system and end up overstocked on particular products, understocked. I see this all the time. 
And yeah, I've seen a lot of stores close, but so, some people are very clever and, and get a community together and get this kind of, you know, more, it's more like a, a church social kind of feeling to the area, which yeah. is great, but everybody's getting together to play D&D 5e or something or magic or, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. sometimes Delta Green. I love those kind of stores and I, we support them in Kickstarter by doing um, straight to store tiers. So we offer them the store discount. They just basically have to ping us with information about their store to make sure it's not some guy selling copies of the book off the back of his car or something. And we gladly do that because we think game stores are worth supporting. But the worst part is sending stuff into the, the distribution system and then getting calls from game stores going, they said it was out of print. It was like, I just wow. sent them, I just sent them 500. And that is the most common call we get yeah. is, is, Oh, the distributor said they're, they sold out or like, no, we have hundreds of them. Yeah. You know? So it's a little, it's a little rough. It's not the store's fault, I guess is what I'm saying. In between them mm -hmm. and us, the distributors, they only, it makes, it makes money sense for them to pay attention to only the biggest publishers. We mm -hmm. literally don't even matter. If we leave a phone message, they'll never call us back. <laughs> we'll have to hunt them down at Origins or something and yell at them. It like, costs the money to call you because yeah. of the time they invest in it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So it's it becomes kind of a losing battle for them and for us. So selling directly through Kickstarter to the fan makes a lot of sense. And selling directly through Kickstarter with a discount to stores makes a lot of sense. But sending it to distributors to get to the store, we're kind of just slowing down the demise of this old process that mm. doesn't really work and never really did. Mm. Uh, not, not for us, at least. So. But it, it sounds like there's opportunity there for the that director store from publisher thing to, to yeah. take off to a certain degree because that's always been the edge of problem is like a third of the money goes to a distributor and all they're doing is passing a package over from one guy to the next guy, right? Yeah, and if, if so they like, don't let's, even, not, let's do without them. Like, let's yeah, yeah, yeah. If they don't even answer the phone on your behalf, they're not even really your distributor. And that that's pretty much every distributor I've ever dealt with is kind of like, who are you again? Well, I'm the guy who sold, you know, this many thousand books last year. And they're like, oh, yeah, that's cute. You know, like, that's that's well, no, but yeah. <laughs> you're like, okay, well, there's nothing I can do there. Um, so it's, 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 a, it's a rough relationship. But with stores, I love to visit stores. I love to, you know, do store signings still. Um, and that's always great fun. And uh, Seattle has a great array of gaming stores that are just really awesome. Uh, mm -hmm. The mall, you know, so. So I think that probably one of the aspects there is that game stores used to be where you went and met other gamers, but yeah, now yeah. we've kind of got the internet and Twitter, which are fairly prolific on all the rest of it. And right. have a, can we call it an uncompromising style, I guess, we'd, we'd call your uh, approach to Twitter. But yeah, how, yeah. Does, how does that feel to be closer to fans and have people who are, you know, going to give you direct feedback and like probably I, I get in your face it. a little bit about it? No, no, I love it. Um, you know, for the most part, my interactions with everybody who likes Delta Green and other stuff I've written or drawn has been just hugely exceedingly positive. It, it's just, it dwarfs any negativity there. And, but I have a, I have a very strong policy on my Twitter. If, if either of you guys follow my Twitter where I'm just kind of like, if you're going to waste my time or you're going to make arguments, just, you know, false arguments because you want me to say something or I'm just going to block you. And I, I really don't care. Like, Sorry, like I'm not, this is my feed. You can come here and we can talk and we can be respectful and cool or you can be kind of a dick about it and I'll just flush you down the airlock. Um, <laughs> and, and this upsets people to no end and I don't understand it. I mean, you have your own feed. I have my own feed. If I showed up on your feed and was like, hey, uh, I think your haircut looks like shit. You know, you like, what's your response going to be? It should, should you're not going to have a metered argument with me about why your haircut looks awesome, you know, or nor should you. You should just be like, okay, bye. And um, the upside is it, it just makes my feed that much cleaner. And everybody there seems happier. Um, we don't get a lot of weird degenerating circular political fighting or anything like that. Um, and, I, you know, I encourage all the creators I know, you know, block early, block often. If they come back to you through another account and they have – they want to make a point, block that too. <laughs> um, and that, that one's really satisfying, actually. That just happened the other day. I was, <laughs> I was like, man, it was like, a, it was like a hat trick. He came back two times and it's flush, flush. Um, so, 
but but the fans, <laughs> the fans who do reach out, you know, most often they have great questions. They have really nice insights. Sometimes they find amazingly bad errors on our yeah. part. And they're just great about it. They're just kind of like, I don't want to be a dick, but on page 32, it says this. And on page 18, it says the opposite. I'm like, oh my God, you know? (laughs) And I thank them and we fix it and, you know, we move on. But it's really, really heartening to put your work out and have such an instant response. It really is. Mm -hmm. Um, Positive or negative. I've had stuff not fly and you just have to learn from that stuff and realize it didn't quite live up to what you had hoped it was going to be. And, try not to do it again. And that's really kind of it. Like there's no big people often, you know, like I made a joke the other day. They're like, what kind of pen do you use to draw? And I'm like a black one. And they're like, <laughs> they're like, no, well, what's the name? And I'm like, zero one. And they're like, that's not the name. What's, what's the name? I'm like, here, just take the pen. Like, it's, it's easier. like I don't, I don't care. Like it's easier for me. To just, you go do your thing. It's not about, for me, it's not about process. It's not about some big pie in the sky artsy thing. It's like putting one foot in front of the other and trying not to fuck up, if I can say that. You um, can. And you did. <laughs> um, I just hope you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I really, I love that. I love that about games. And what's even better is hearing people come back with new and interesting uses to the things I've written or drawn. They come back and they go, when I ran it, this happened. And it's amazing. It's always, it's always really heartening and cool to hear like, here's how they solved you know, the haunted house scenario you wrote, or here's how they solved the night floors. And I always, you know, I always laugh and write them down. I literally copy and paste them into a file. When I feel down, I look at that and go, at least I'm making, you know, these couple hundred people have fun somewhere. Can't be that have you, bad. Have you ever managed to uh, to get in a game of Delta Green without telling the people who you were? No. Like, you know, no. done that whole boss back to the shop floor kind of, no. Secret squirrel stuff. No, I've run I've run Delta Green for unsuspecting parties where like I an think, ambush. Yeah, I think they kind of knew who I was, but right. uh, but you know they didn't know what the scenario was or anything like that. At Gen Con every year, I run a game for just random mm. people, and that's always great fun. Um, but no, I'd love to do that. Um, we're actually um, I've been playing and running on Roll Twenty quite a bit. Yeah, I don't know if you guys use that over there. Sure. Yeah. 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 And uh, we've been working on getting kind of a, a clear vision for what a Delta Green scenario might look like on the Roll20 virtual tabletop. Mm-hmm. And we're coming up with some really neat stuff. Um, so, yeah, I'd love to just, yeah, that'd be great. A Halloween game where no one knows who I am and I run a scenario. Sure. That sounds awesome. I'm that'd in. Be really cool. <laughs> I think it's, um, do you think you said that's more of a digital demand? I mean, I saw it with Warhammer, for example. That the, I mean, they still haven't got the book out yet. And people are going, yeah, but where's your... Uh, you roll 20 skin because we definitely need this yeah. otherwise we can't play our game what's wrong with you people and i yeah. was thinking what's wrong with you like let, let them get the game out first and then complain that there's the skin. It, it, it has become really important you know like uh, i'll give you a really great example like the first group i ever played with uh was in 83 84 my junior high school high school dnd group we play dnd 5e for the last two years now on roll 20 because they're they're in North Carolina and Seattle and Minnesota and Arizona. And we get together once a week and do stupid stuff with D twenties on roll 20. And it's really important because so, you know, so many of the people I meet who buy these books are, you know, past their college years. They are, they, they, they've kind of moved on with their lives and they've moved various places for jobs and things. So roll 20, I think has a really strong future and they're, I mean, they're doing really well. Um, mm. Because so many people back it up. And, you know, honestly, the Warhammer guys, it's so easy to write one of those skins. We have a Delta Green one up there. One of our fans wrote, and he did a great job. So if you ever want to play Delta Green, it's all built in. The character sheet, all the dice rolls, the sanity. Oh, okay. Yeah. I'll not check one out, but I'll, I'll do that. There you go. That'd be like this year. I'll be running some Delta Green keeping out. <laughs> um, but I think uh, part of my question, which I want to ask, is how much the fans are involved in that, which I think you've answered there in terms of the fans have come up with a skin. Oh, yeah. For games, you see fans come up with their own character sheets because, like, they, they look yep. at the one that the game's providing and gone, well, that's a pound. <laughs> like, how can, you're missing these obvious things we need. So they go and make yeah. them and then they make what? it accessible. And you talked about, like, ideas, but I think even for, like, editing and stuff like that, games yeah, yeah. More beta copies out these days. And why hire an editor? Like, you don't just get, like, yeah. 500 people to check for you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, the other big thing I'll say that a lot of people don't really talk about is um, RPGs are unique. They Comic books are, you know, you read a comic book, 
you, you sometimes write a fan letter, you complain about it online, but you've never really been invited in to write the X-Men, you know, like <laughs> they're not kind of like, okay, you know, what are your ideas for the next series of the X-Men fan? They don't care. Right. RPGs are like, here, here's the toolkit, go make a world. And we're inviting them to do that. Like the creators are literally going, here's a 300 page toolkit to make your own game world. Come, you know, be sure to tell us how much fun you have with it and tell everybody else. And then when they come back and they're like, well, I changed this and they didn't like this. And I, you know, I see RPG creators complain about it. I'm like, dude, you just, you literally invited them over for a party. They want to play a different way. That's cool. That's their, that's their prerogative. It's their game, right? And yes, you are. If they're polite, you're obligated to listen to them. They, they bought your book. Be nice. Like, <laughs> um, however, you know, you know, if they attack your family, they yell at you or whatever else, you know, feel free to flush them out the airlock. But, uh, you know, I, I love RPGs because they're unique. And I think that's why they're still here. It, it, it's a it's a very um, there's a very it's a very strong creative handoff. It is literally giving you're giving the ball to these people and they're running with it. Um, and, and it lives or dies based on that one person, that guy or girl who ends up with the book. They go, oh, cool. I see how I can make this. Or they just read it for fun. But either way, they're thinking of ideas and how they would change it, how they would make it better, how they would. And, and sometimes their ideas are just better than yours. Uh, it happens a lot. And I, I just love that because that's how I started is I looked at Call of Cthulhu and went, I can do better than that. <laughs> uh you know uh it took a lot of work and you know we almost froze to death but we did i think we did a little <laughs> bit better than that but yeah anyway i i guess that's what i love about rpgs is people people you invite them inside and then they're they're creating and that's amazing absolutely so is there anything that you've got in your radar at the minute i don't know how much chance you get to play other games or read the stuff like have you got anything that you've been looking at recently or something that you've seen that might be upcoming oh you mean rpg wise yeah or anything else if you've got cool ideas. Yeah. The stuff, uh, well, the, uh, the stuff I've been reading most recently is the new Masks of Mural Thotep. I've run that. Uh, I think this is this seven times now, and wow. I've been in. I've been in it three. Wow! Uh, and uh, died horribly. I, I, some of my favorite character deaths of all time have occurred in Masks of Mural Thotep. I still dream about that. Uh, John Tynes ran a bunch of Masks of Mural Thotep and had great endings for all that. Anyway, I'm reading Master Your Altotep. Uh, I just finished the 13th Age Rule book. Rob gave me a copy years ago, and I haven't really been reading it, but I, mm-hmm. I should have earlier. And uh, I read all the D&D 5e stuff. I love that stuff. Um, just having a great time running that. My player characters, uh, my, my high school group had spent two years um, hunting uh, Aserak, the, the Demi-Lich, yeah. and it finally just destroyed him. And they're now dealing with the, the consequences of having unseated, a, you know, someone who's controlling a portion of the universe. And uh, it, it's, it's quite fun. I mean, I, we haven't had this much fun in D&D in years. So that's cool. So, yeah, I, I like playing that. And I still run Delta Green all the time. Is there a, a delineation then between work and the fun feeling? Because, you, as you say, you're up to your neck writing Delta Green, but you're also running it. Is there a danger at some point that you get to the, you were just like, I want to play My Little Pony or something? I just <laughs> <laughs> no, um, you know, like I, I, um, I have a, when I was in video games, I, I, I bought myself a Donkey Kong machine, which has like 300 games on it. So whenever I get brain dead, like whenever I'm typing or something and I start to feel myself fading, I'll go play Dig Dug or Donkey Kong or, and I'll give myself, oh, you get three quarters or five quarters or, you know, depending on how hard I was working. <laughs> and, and it always clears my brain out, uh, you know, playing one of those really simple, straightforward 80s coin op arcade games or just Galaga or something. They just, it's just like a brainwash. And then I come back and I feel much more rejuvenated and I'll, I'll do that three or four times a day. All right. Okay. So yeah, works it works really well. Have you seen a movie called King of Kong? Yes. Yes. Genius. Yeah. Yes. I'll put that in the show notes for our listeners as well. People have to watch that. <laughs> no, it's a that's a great movie. So I think we're getting to about time there, unfortunately. Which which is a shame because it's been a great show. Oh, cool. But but um have you have you got anything else in the pipeline? Or is it all Delta Green all the time right now? Actually, me and Shane Ivy have been writing um D D five E adventures. Oh wow. Um, uh, which are very dark sword and sorcery 
adventures that can be plopped in and they're they're designed to, to run a character from first level all the way up to max level with these kind of set adventures in a much more um conan-esque vision of the mm-hmm. adventurers so you know there aren't you know three million bards and two million magic users wandering around you're you're in this lone group of weirdos on the edge of society who go off and do crazy amazing things you're highly uncommon um and we we really wanted to kind of bring um you know Fawford and the Grey Mouser slash Conan feel to to D and D five E with um, very specific uh, historically inspired settings, um, and then you know new takes on monsters that exist in D and D five E, but given a folklore kind of uh, backstory too. So it's quite fun. And th- that seems to be a phenomenon at the minute that. Like lots of people seem to be hanging on to D and D five E. Do you think it's like the best D and D? I really, like, I really like five E. My favorite D and D is probably a D and D first edition, just because I know it so well. I played it yeah. for so long; it's like embedded in my brain. Um, but I'll tell you an interesting fact: Mike Merles, one of his first jobs was the D twenty conversion in Godlike. Um, ah, now that was in the back of the hardback. Yeah, yeah, yep. yeah. That was that was I think his second job in gaming, and you know I re- I recall an early Gen Con where the Pagan Boys sat down to get drunk with Mike Merles and Mike, we had to kind of you know spatula Mike off the chair at the end of that. But <laughs> <laughs> oh, we love you, Mike. <laughs> no, he was on a few weeks ago, was Mike? He's a good guy. <laughs> okay, John works for him now, so <laughs> <laughs> that's true. <laughs> it's, you may not all live in the same freezing house anymore, but you are basically in the same house. It's just hotter, and it's we not are, in the same house. We are, we are, we are definitely all in contact all the time. So. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so it's it's you know, five um, E is very popular, um, and you know, there's a lot of reasons I do it. Um, a lot of my friends, uh, I don't know if you know, uh, did you see the Kickstarter? You saw the Kickstarter for Critical Role? Oh, sure, yeah, yeah, yeah amazing. So Chris Pernoski, the uh, the company Titmouse that's doing the animation. It's my mm-hmm. college buddy. We went to college together. The three college, you know, mates uh, are Phil Shostak, who's the lead art director at um, Lucasfilm. Mm-hmm. Chris Bernoski, who runs Titmouse. They do like Venture Brothers and everything. And then me with, you know, Magic the Gathering and all this other kind of goofy stuff. And now it's all come back around. We used to play D&D together in college. And now it's all come back around to this giant D&D thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so I know all those guys and it's, you know, it's really cool to see them back in gaming and really loving it and to know that their, their love was always there. They've just been waiting for the market to kind of catch up with them, which is <laughs> it's really cool. So, yeah, it's really, I think there's a, a, one of our fellow shows over in the UK, the Grognard Files is, is based around a couple of guys who used to play back in the day, ended up getting married and having kids and like losing gaming for a bit and recently have got back into it and they're, right. you know, they have a huge listenership because there's loads of other like middle-aged blogs who are kind of going like, right, right. I remember this, they're blowing dust stuff, they're all expert edition of D&D and stuff. Right. And <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll put this out there in case any of your fans are interested. We have a dream at Arc Dream to do a round robin Delta Green game where we begin in the 80s. And <laughs> when you when you die, you die and you're out. Player. Player's gone. And a new agent comes in and we just do that and we just try and crawl through the time. So I'd really love to do that. Anybody has any ideas? Ping me anytime. You can find me on cool. Twitter. <laughs> no problem. Right. Well, I think we're there for time. Dennis, thanks very much for coming on. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, guys. Nice Cheers, to to Dennis. Yeah, I really appreciated it. Thank you, mate. Oh, no problem. And ping me anytime. Maybe we can get together and have a Delta Green game. Cool. That'd be good.